leg of his pants. Put all those questions aside. Ask simply, could he have opened the knife with one hand in that tight corner of the small room with a large man attempting to sodomize him? The prosecutor ridiculed the idea, taking up the knife, People's Exhibit 7, and waving it around the court while badgering the defendant for particulars. In the videotaped testimony, taken shortly after he confessed to the stabbing, Milcray had used the word flick to describe how he opened the knife. For emphasis now and dramatic effect, the prosecutor gave the closed knife a histrionic flick and showed that it remained closed. From the stand, Milcray, his disarmingly high, effete voice and southern accent giving him an almost solicitous air, began to gesture helpfully while trying to explain, No, not like that. You got to... Like this? asked the prosecutor, making another ineffectual flail. No, you got to, together, flick the wrist and use the stud. Well, cooed the prosecutor, drubbing away at the closed knife with his thumb and pumping his arm as if he were shaking off a Gila monster, maybe I'm not so good at it as you. Of this there could be little doubt. Go back eighteen months. On August 2, 1998, around four o'clock in the afternoon, two officers from Manhattan's 6th Precinct took turns kicking at the door of apartment number one at 103 Corlears Street a white brick building on the west side of the street between Christopher and West Tenth. When they forced the door, without splitting the jam or unseating the latch, it opened in and to the right, stopping against a low coffee table and revealing a shallow studio that extended about 15 feet to each side, but was perhaps only 12 feet deep. Holding back the young man who had brought them to the site, the officers entered the room. Draped over the dark futon couch before them, and trailing onto the floor to their right, lay two blankets. One, a cream-colored knit coverlet, the other a cheap quilted bedspread. Blood spatters stained both. Later, the officers would disagree on the lighting, but they concurred that the television was not on, and that the curtain of the single, street-facing, ground-level window to their right was opaque and closed, with the exception of a small opening in the lower left corner. Causing this aperture was the lifeless hand of an African-American male, about six feet tall and slightly under 200 pounds. The body lay face down, the head wedged between the arm of the futon and the radiator under the window, the legs splayed into the middle of the room. Rigor mortis had cemented a tableau of the victim's final gesture, the right arm reaching up to the sill, surely an effort to pull himself to the window and call for help. Under the left arm lay a wig of long, dark, kinky hair. The body was naked. The officers testified that they did not approach the figure or check for vital signs. Twenty-odd stab wounds along the right side of the victim's spine, neck, and head persuaded them from across the room of what the assistant medical examiner would confirm several hours later. Randolph Cuffey, Antigua, a habitué of the Watutsi Lounge and a familiar face in the other gay bars of the West Village, was dead. Not, however, until later, 
When crime scene investigators pulled the stiffened body into the middle of the room and rolled it over, did anyone see the wound that actually killed him? That thin and nearly bloodless slit at his sternum, which, reaching two and a half inches into the thoracic cavity, had just nicked, in the words of the chief medical examiner, the upper arch of the aorta. Within minutes of the blow, misplaced blood would have filled the sac around the heart, choking off its beat, a condition known as an acute traumatic cardiac tamponade. It is as if the heart drowns. Immobility follows, and death shortly thereafter. Also revealed when the body was moved, two braided leather whips and two unrolled condoms, one inside the other. Part 1 The Open Court Chapter 1 How It Ended I have, on my desk at this moment, twelve five-by-seven ruled index cards. On each of them, the same two words appear. Not guilty. Eight are written in pen, four in pencil. On eight of them, the words appear along a single line. On two, the words are perpendicular to the ruling, and on two, they are scrawled diagonally. One of these last has been written on an inverted card, turned so that the red top line and margin are at the bottom. Three of the cards are written in all caps. Three have only the initial letters capitalized. Three are all lowercase, and two others show the N capitalized, but not the G. In the last of all of them, the word NOT appears in all caps, but the word GUILTY is all lowercase. By dint of these varied inscriptions, made in silence in a few tense moments, Monty Virginia Milcray walked out of Part 24 of the New York State Supreme Court, got into an elevator, and descended to the cold wetness of Center Street a little before noon on February 19th of the year 2000. I preceded him by several minutes, getting into a cab with my duffel bag and riding the dozen blocks home to my wife, with whom I had not spoken in four days. The cards were folded in the breast pocket of my navy blazer. I was crying. The twelve cards represent the potent residue of the most intense 66 hours of my life, a period during which I served as the foreman of a jury charged to decide whether Monty Milcray was guilty of murdering Randolph Cuffey. During that period, twelve individuals of considerable diversity engaged in a total of twenty-three hours of sustained conversation in a small bare room. We ran the gamut of group dynamics. A clutch of strangers yelled, cursed, rolled on the floor, vomited, whispered, embraced, sobbed, and invoked both God and necromancy. There were moments when the scene could have passed for a graduate seminar in political theory, and others that might have been a jujitsu class. A few came straight out of Bedlam. Before it was over, we had spent three nights and four days continuously attended by armed guards who extended their affable surveillance into all lavatories. We had been shuttled to outlying hotels, into rooms with disconnected phones and sinks in which we washed our clothes. We had watched one juror pulled from our midst and rushed to the hospital, a physical collapse caused by some combination of missing medication and the crucible of the deliberations. 
another, make a somewhat half-hearted effort to escape, he was apprehended, and we watched a third insist on her right to contact her own lawyer to extricate her from the whole affair. She was threatened with contempt. During significant stretches in this trying time, we considered two weeks of testimony in The People of New York versus Monty, Virginia Milcray, and struggled to understand two things. What happened in Cuffey's apartment on the night of August 1st, 1998, and what responsibilities we had as citizens and jurors. It is my intention to tell this story as best I can. I am doing so for several reasons, among them two in particular. First, because there are things to be learned from the way events unfolded, about people, about the law, about justice, about truth and how we know it. And, second, because the jury room is a most remarkable and largely inaccessible space in our society, a space where ideas, memories, virtues, and prejudices clash with the messy stuff of the big, bad world. We expect much of this room, and we think about it less often than we probably should. Before I embark on this task, however, a few words of warning. There are really two stories here, that of the case itself, a trial story, a courtroom story, a drama focused on a violent death, and that of the deliberations, the story of what happened behind the closed door of the jury room. Each of these stories is complex, and they are, of course, entangled. I set out to write this book in order to tell the latter story, but to do so, I must rehearse elements of the former. Let me be clear, though. It is by no means my intention to retry this case in a personal memoir. The case is closed. In writing this book, I have made no additional investigations of the events at issue. I have not revisited the records of the trial, and I have not interviewed any of the people involved. All of that was tempting, and would certainly have been interesting. But my sense has been that to embark on such digging would have been, inevitably, to put the trial on trial, to lose myself again in the twisting labyrinth of unrecoverable fact that we negotiated once in the jury room. I would have begun to extend that labyrinth, to open up new rooms and passages, and this was not the aim. I am sure there is more to the maze than I have seen. When is there not? But by keeping notes during the weeks of the trial, I laid a thread along the path we took together as jurors, and that is the thread I will follow here. A further disclaimer. What I am writing is my own story of the deliberations. I have no idea what those who shared the experience with me would make of this document, should they pick it up, or should they hear this program. Or let me speak more frankly. I'm sure each of them would contest my story in different ways, argue perhaps that I did not represent them rightly, assert that this part over here was not that way, draw my attention to things I have forgotten. If one learns anything from a criminal trial under the adversary system, it is that sincere folk can differ vehemently about events, and that there is seldom any easy way to figure out what actually went on. At different moments while writing this account, much of it longhand in a notebook during the weeks following the acquittal, I have closed my eyes and tried to imagine what the small, bare jury room looked like from the perspective of the others. We sat around the same table, but the room must have appeared slightly different to each. I tried to see in my mind's eye how things looked from the other side, the door 
on one's right, the winter windows at one's back. That is where Dean Kessler sat. What would he think of this narrative? Dean, the big, solid, former bull-riding cowboy turned vacuum cleaner repairman. Dean, the six-foot-three-inch, born-again, God-fearing veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces. When I first noticed him, in the early days of jury selection, he was spitting tobacco juice behind the radiator by the elevator during a break. He had thin brown hair slicked back and a manly mustache. He wore a weathered pair of work boots. A blowhard contractor of some sort, I assumed, and I pegged him, without much thought, as a poster boy for Susan Faludi's tragic tale of the white working-class male. Big chest, big gut, big debt. I called him, irreverently, the Faludi man in my notes. What did I know? Before the trial ended, he had blown my stereotype, indeed any stereotype, wide open. What would he say about all this, about what I have written? Or Felipe Rodriguez? I originally wrote to myself that he seemed sweet and shy. He giggled often, wore a large number of braided string bracelets, seemed lost in his giant orange parka. I came to loathe him. By the end, he had thrown much into question for me, not least my confidence in jury trials. Are there some citizens not clearly able to distinguish daytime television from daily life? Apparently there are. Should they participate in deciding on the freedom of another person? Maybe. I doubt he remembers things as I do. And there were others, of course. Leah Tennant, the self-possessed and buoyantly bohemian young woman with whom I read Wallace Stevens' poems in the back of the bus. Olivelle Vell Tover, the youthful, clear-eyed black woman with an elaborate braided coiffure who studied a manual of purgative and rejuvenating fasts in the waiting area. We discussed together the value of self-denial, of cleansing the body through the strictest diets. Rachel Patisse, the solid, quiet, unflappable West Indian woman who volunteered at her local police precinct and wore blouses trimmed with lace. She moved slowly, sat very still, seemed like an older lady. Patricia Malley, Pat, the dyed blonde tough girl in the tight black jeans who spoke loudly and much, often well. She seemed instantly animated in Dean's company, adjusted her eyeliner, laughed easily and with gusto and so on. James Lanes, who went by Jim, Jessica Polero, Susie O'Meara, Paige Bari, and Adele Beneth. This last was...